This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Eleanor Marx, a biography by Yvonne Kapp, with a preface by Sally Alexander. Eleanor Marx is one of the most tragically overlooked radical figures in history, usually overshadowed by her father, Carl. But not only did she edit, translate, transcribe, and collaborate with her father, she also led an extraordinary life as a labor organizer, trade unionist, translator, actor, writer, and feminist. Much of this we only know because of this highly acclaimed, outstanding exception to the omission of Eleanor Marx from history. Yvonne Kapp's biography was first published at the height of feminist organizing in the 1970s. Kapp brilliantly succeeds in capturing Eleanor's spirit, from a lively child opining on the world's affairs, to the new woman, aspiring to the stage, earning her living as a free intellectual, and helping to lead England's unskilled workers at the height of the new unionism. She was always more than, yet at the same time, inescapably, Karl Marx's daughter. It is also, inevitably, an unrivaled biography of the Marx household in Victorian London, of the Marx circle, and of Frederick Ingalls, the family's extraordinary mentor. Eleanor Marx, a biography, by Yvonne Kapp, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. For many, conservatives and liberals alike, Appalachia provides a skeleton key for interpreting changes in American politics that might otherwise be difficult to comprehend. For Trump and company, the region represents the eruption of a silent white majority squeezed from jobs by out-of-touch environmentalists and sneered at by coastal elites wielding an oppressive social capital that now looms far larger than actual capital. Meanwhile, many liberals do sneer, ruining a white rube resentment dead set on reducing the entirety of America to the rubble of their sorry state and clinging to a bygone past unmovably hostile to the rationality, diversity, and economic dynamism of the 21st century. But when conservatives aren't cheering the forgotten men of Appalachia, they join in that condescension too, and even more sinisterly, imbuing it with a neo-eugenicist gloss that maps the supposed tangled pathologies of poor urban black people on to their rural white counterparts. Though painting poor white people as white trash, unworthy of true whiteness, is racist in itself, it's also a way for conservatives to signal that they have an equal opportunity and sympathy to the poor, and thus provide cover for their own racism. The upshot is that racism, and the larger war against working-class people that racism cleverly facilitates, is strengthened. Appalachia does require analysis— including into why a region that not long ago included overwhelming Democratic strongholds backed Trump so decisively in 2016. But what's missing from many analyses is the historical and political economic context that might make them accurate. We cannot understand West Virginia, as my guest Elizabeth Catt makes clear, without taking stock of the coal industry's 
decades of brutal exploitation of workers, and unrestrained destruction of the land, and of Democratic politicians' deep complicity in it all. Just as important as analyzing Appalachia, however, is analyzing what Appalachia has become as an icon for Americans as a whole. In other words, the way conservatives and liberals talk about Appalachia tells us a lot more about conservatives and liberals than it does about the region. While Trump's embrace of coal has no doubt found a receptive audience in Appalachia, it has also resonated widely amongst Americans nationwide, for whom coal represents a both real and imagined bygone American prosperity, the reference point for an America that can be made great again through voyeuristically celebrating the virile masculine bodies of miners. Bodies that the industry and Trump use for their own purposes and then destroy. The West Virginia teacher strike has unsettled simplistic representations of the region and made the state a model not just of grievance and backwardness, but also of labor militancy against Republican austerity in the very places we have come to least expect it. Even so, the left shouldn't just casually flip the dominant narrative on its head, turning liberal villains into uncomplicated and romanticized working-class heroes. Richard Ojeda, a state senator and loud supporter of the teacher strike, could very well win a congressional district that went heavily for Trump back to the Democrats. Ojeda is a champion of labor. He is also a big fan of coal and of standing for the national anthem, and who mobilized West Virginia Democrats behind Trump in 2016. The action of striking offered a different way for outsiders to think about West Virginia, and perhaps has transformed the political subjectivities of people in the region themselves. But even as we push back against paternalistic and racist representations of Appalachia, we shouldn't just invert them into a romanticized vision that suits our political needs on the left. People there, like people everywhere, are complicated. And that's why left-wing politics always requires a lot of work. Many in the region, as Elizabeth Catt explains, are doing just that organizing work right now. Before we get started, I'd like to lend my voice to those calling for the Turkish government to immediately release journalist Max Zirngast, a regular contributor to Jacobin. According to his friends and comrades, anti-terror police seized him from his apartment in Ankara around 5 in the morning on September 11th. Zerngast has been a persistent critic of the growing authoritarianism and repression under Recep Tayyip Erdogan. I join in the demands for Zerngast's release, and for the release of the many political prisoners locked up in Erdogan's Turkey. Also, if you're in Philly on this Thursday, September 20th, I'll be in town for a film screening at the Lightbox Film Center. Two films from the late 1960s, early 1970s left-wing documentary filmmaking collective Newsreel will be shown. First, People's War, which, and I'm reading from a description here, records the mobilization and participation of the Vietnamese people in their country's fight against colonialism and foreign military aggression. Moving beyond the perception of Vietnamese as victims, the film investigates a society fully committed to national liberation. That film will be followed by Young Puppeteers of Vietnam. Art, dance, music, and poetry became a vital necessity for the liberated areas of South Vietnam in their daily efforts to survive the bombings and napalming of the Vietnam War. In this moving film, teenagers in the National Liberation Front liberated zones make beautiful puppets from the remains of downed U.S. warplanes.
That's this Thursday, September 20th, at 7 p.m. at Lightbox Film Center, which is 3701 Chestnut Street, right by the University of Pennsylvania. Finally, please support this podcast at patreon.com slash the dig, because if you like and listen to this show, we need you to help ensure its long-term viability. We also have a newsletter, usually weekly, for those who contribute $5 or more a month. For $10, I'll send you either Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism or Assad Haters' Mistaken Identity. For contributions of $20 or more, I've got a bunch of great left-wing books to send you. Okay, here's Elizabeth Catt, a writer and historian based in Staunton, Virginia. She is the author of What You Are Getting Wrong About Appalachia and an editor of the book 55 Strong, Inside the West Virginia Teacher Strike. Elizabeth Catt, welcome to The Dig. Thanks so much for having me. Your book systematically knocks down these really pervasive stereotypes that represent Appalachia as this monolithic white rural ghetto. And it's this icon, I think, that's embraced by both liberals and conservatives, and they use it to interpret what is wrong generally with poor white people everywhere. Yet some place called Appalachia indeed exists. So I thought a good first question would be, what is Appalachia geographically, but also in terms of political economy, culture, shared history, however messy, conflicted, and diverse it might all be? Yeah, that's actually a really good question to start because uh, in talking to people about the book, one of the things they were really glad to have was um, some definitions of Appalachia and, and ideas to the scope of the region. So we'll use like the Appalachian Regional Commission's definition to kind of ground um, the discussion to say that Appalachia is 420, I think, counties um, spread across 13 states. Um, West Virginia is only is the is the only state entirely within Appalachia, but the region follows loosely the arc of the Appalachian Mountains, as the name obviously suggests. Um, as far down south as Alabama, and as far far north as is is New York. So. It's a huge region. There's about 25 million people who live within Appalachia. Um, depopulation is a huge issue here, though. So it's really challenging to get um, a sense of the, the demographics outside of census years. Um, because it follows the definition of uh, the Appalachian Regional Commission, the 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 region is defined um, essentially by poverty. Uh, the, the work of the Appalachian Regional Commission was to dis- distribute federal aid efficiently. So it um, selected the poorest counties and then graded them on a scale of um, you know dire or or subsiding. So poverty is region, region is poverty, um, and that's really an enduring impression in people's minds about what Appalachia is, uh, poverty. So there are um, historically a couple of of places in the region that are associated strongly with the coal industry, and those are uh, southern West Virginia, eastern Kentucky, and southwest Virginia. Those are the historic coal communities. Um, Currently, there's probably about, I don't know, 36,000 people who work in coal mining in the entire region, 
so it's a is a political is an economic force um it's you know the numbers are dwindling but it's still very culturally relevant um other than that it has some of the worst health and employment outcomes in the country um when we talk about what comes next politically um and economically for appalachia we often use a shorthand uh, phrase called the transition to talk through um what kind of economy, what kind of a landscape we want to see um, in the next 50 years. You write, quote, Appalachian scholars and activists often prefer to stress our interconnectedness with other regions and peoples rather than set ourselves apart as exceptions. And it seems like one key feature of how representations of Appalachia function in American politics is to hermetically seal the region off as some some vestige of the past, a place that's somehow, as you put it, out of time. What your book shows is that this placement of the region outside of time includes this, is, is related to this refusal to place Appalachia inside its historical context of capitalist development as this key site for raw exploitation and expropriation. To me, this seems really similar to how people in the West have often viewed indigenous or third world people as uncivilized and backwards on their own account, rather than people who were systematically pillaged and underdeveloped by Western capitalists. A deep discussion that that seems to be always taking place, um, never not since the 1970s, at least, um, about whether or not Appalachia can be accurately described as an internal colony or a resource colony for the United States. And there's, you know, a lot of convincing reasons on on either side of the question why it should or should not be. Um, But I think what grounds me to the question, to that question, is that the people who control Appalachia's political economy, uh, the people who control Appalachia's industry, and this has been true generally for the past 150 years, think about Appalachia as a colony. Um, And so that 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 was so striking to me when when I kind of had that epiphany. I don't know several. I mean, it wasn't wasn't you know too long ago that whatever, you mean that it's regional elites that think of yeah this, yeah exactly this way as well both um so both outside and and inside um the region um those with wealth and power think of Appalachia or want Appalachia to be um, a colony for. Uh, the wider United States or, or or even the world, if we look at what's happening more recently with West Virginia and sort of like the fracking industry, um, for example. And so that's, I think that's, that's you know, incredibly <laughs> profound to think about. And, um, you know, what you said that there's just sort of like an incuriosity and, and a desire to steal Appalachia away from the rest of the world. You know, I think we like to believe that there are just... Um, Zones of sacrifice, for example, that exist within the United States and the world, um, the Gulf Coast um, of Texas, um, Louisiana, for example, is another zone of sacrifice um, where people just have the bad luck to be born. And um, if they're if they show ambition, then they get out because these are landscapes that are just there to be used for raw materials. So petrochemicals, coal. Uh, fract gas, things of that nature. There's just, um, yeah, a really striking incuriosity about the ways that these regions are connected to um, the wider United States and even the rest of the world and, you know, how 
people outside the region and within it are kind of complicit in the systems that drive drive that as well. One example in your book of a situation where Appalachia was placed sort of out of time and out of political, economic, historical context in a in a very damaging way was the disaster in Sago, West Virginia, that killed 12 miners in 2006. And you write about how this widespread national media coverage tended to folkloricize the community, first the community's hopes that their relatives trapped underground would survive. And then when it turned out they wouldn't in their portrayals of, of, of their mourning. And this again seems like an example of how these actual people in a community with mines, mining, raw materials for the energy system of American and global capitalism are abstracted from all of that context and instead conscripted to be actors in some sort of fable. Can you explain what happened at Sago and how the national media covered it and and what for you that coverage reflected? Yeah, so um, in 2006, there was an explosion in um, Sago, West Virginia that um, instantly killed uh, a, a few people, but there was um, credible evidence that the other miners might have just become temporarily trapped by by debris and could be saved. Um, so there was a media, you know, um, what would you say, uh, vigil at the mine and um, lasted for about two days. And there was a very dramatic plot twist where um, mine representatives incorrectly conveyed to the family that they had discovered um, all of the miners alive when in fact all but one had died. This plot twist became sort of like a very lurid media spectacle um, as news reporters uh, recycled images of the family's grief. They they kind of presented this moment of celebration that the families um, had before they the, the real news was confirmed, um, rebroadcast that over and over and over again as sort of like the pinnacle of and defeat of false hope. In um, sort of a split split screen. Yeah. Yeah. Spirituality was um, a theme of the coverage. Um, the deeply religious community um, often um, um, in some of the, the the letters that they found that had been written by the men, spirituality was a theme as well. And so, um, anything that had to do with um, the the safety violations that the mine had received um, in the coming in in the years and months before the the accident were kind of excised from from coverage. Um, and it became a sort of spectacle about decent, damaged people who had been tormented by false hope, not people who had been put um, in harm's way by a callous and greedy employer. And so one of the I mean, one of the things I think that is so frustrating as a person who lives in this region, and this is a, a shared frustration, is I, Appalachia is such low hanging fruit, I think, for, you know, an average person to understand how um, corporate malfeasance, the unchecked capitalism, um, political corruption um, can really can derail and ruin and ruin lives and and and. Um, not just, you know, become minor frustrations, but potential sources of death on a day-to-day basis. Um, it is such such an easy thing 
for an open-minded person to to be able to see. And again and again, those moments where there's a, a very, uh, where the window is wide open, such as the Sago mine disaster, for example, um, is just derailed over and over again. But what's much more appealing from the national media's perspective is their folksy, religious, down-home decency and goodness. Mm-hmm. And and that's sort of like the noble savage side of the dichotomy of how Appalachia's framed. Then there's just like the the bad backward framing, which you talk about a lot in the book. This icon of, of white working class or underclass people, again, embraced by many liberals and conservatives alike. Mm-hmm. For conservatives, there's this this nakedly hostile stereotyping typified, of course, by J.D. Vance's hillbilly elegy. And then there's this purportedly sympathetic version, which sort of fits into Sarah Palin's Real America and now Trump's Forgotten Minor and his whole neo-Nixonite silent majority. And it seems like that allows a Republican Party that so aggressively represents the interests of the wealthiest Americans and corporations to give themselves this everyman cred. And then and then for liberals, it seems from reading your book, the stereotyping of, of Appalachia is is maybe a way to obscure the the more complex historical roots of Trump's victory. What do you make of of the bipartisan political convergence around these extremely hollow caricatures of the region? So I see um kind of three motivations tied to tied to this kind of caricaturing uh one we 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 just talked about which is this um kind of incuriosity about how appalachia and other these you know quote zones of sacrifices are connected to um the wider united states or world um the first you know is just the bipartisan impulse to hate and shame the poor um this is not specific to appalachia whatsoever but the presumed i think homogeneity of the region and its regionality um, makes us really easy targets for um, that kind of animus. And the second, well, the last is um, I think that, you know, the kind of like neurosis among some white people to find um, other white people who are more racist or more bigoted or more ignorant um, than they are for no, no real purpose except to be able to point their finger at somebody else and say, you know, I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not. Um, that guy. And again, the the presumed homogeneity of Appalachia and, you know, the regionality give um, those caricatures a strong assist. And then all of these are kind of aided by um, a really kind of powerful myth making that runs really deep in Appalachia, so deep that it can appear to be natural. Um, and this would be, for example, the the perception that people in Appalachia are sort of ignorant and helpless and that, you know, they have weak character. Um, because if you think back um, to kind of the moment that extractive capitalism, for example, became um, a force in the region, the idea that mountain people and their recruitment into the workforce, um, that it was going to be to their betterment, was a powerful myth. And so all of these, I think, work together. They cut across the political spectrum. Um, there are different, you know, conservatives and liberals have different answers to those, um, you know, to the problems that those, um, that the realities 
uh, you know, pose and, and represent, but but generally, um, you know, subscribing to stereotypes about poor people is an equal opportunity activity. And and it seems like both on the left and right, or maybe not the left, on amongst amongst mm-hmm. liberals and the right, there's sort of a good Appalachia stereotype and a and 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 a bad one, and people sort of instrumentally use one or the other because you have people obviously Trump is always lauding the the decency of of minors but JD Vance and people like Kevin D Williams at the National Review yeah. um are really into you know pathologizing white Appalachians as profoundly almost genetically backward I wonder how you see the the images of impoverished Appalachia, how you see them functioning alongside that of or or by comparison to the the impoverished black ghetto in liberal and conservative elite imaginaries, because you cite this one Williams essay in the National Review, which described Appalachia as a bit a quote big white ghetto populated by quote the unemployed, the dependent, and the addicted. Yeah, I think that essay came out in late um, 2014. And so I now it wasn't that even I, about Vance's book. Yeah. So well, I was going to say now that like I know the rest of the story, so to speak, um, you, and know that Vance was a contributor to the National Review. Um, I think you know it's fair to say that um, Williams had an idea that that Appalachia was going to be part of the political narrative. Um, but yeah. So when I contextualize essays like that, um, it immediately makes me think of the 1960s when we had um, the development of what, you know, LBJ called the war on poverty in America. And so the parallel um, war going on in America was white America's war against African-Americans and the resistance that took place through the civil rights movement. So you have on one hand in the press images of blonde haired, blue eyed, dirty faced, white Appalachians in the mountains, the quote unquote deserving poor, and then um, the the sort of parallel use of images of African American poverty um, to kind of hint at the undeserving poor to distract from I think the realities of of Black life and what they represented and what was being um, fought for during the Civil Rights Movement and, and beyond. So we were, you know, we were the distraction I think um, in many respects. Um, the political, the political and, and, and media distraction um, from the civil rights movement, and, and in some cases, you know, there were, there were indeed um, privileges attached to that. It was a privileged position, no matter how kind of you know flawed it was. The ARC, the Appalachian Regional Commission, for example, um, is in many ways like a success story for for us. But yeah, all of this, you know, kind of you know seems to be recirculating again, which is. Um, the the rediscovery of Appalachia in in 2016 2015 um, to to kind of make what seemed to me a very broad argument that that you know suggested that all of our attention to race and racism in this country over the last you know maybe five years had been misplaced that while we were looking you know at Ferguson at Trayvon Martin that there were you know the quote unquote forgotten people. Um, who were, you know, quietly suffering that nobody cared about, 
Um, this is, you know, the message of, of Hillbilly LG in the National Review and the American Conservative. And so I, I think, again, that there's um, a very, you know, we're, we're playing a similar part in the 1960s and in 2016 and even um, even in this current moment as well. The, the West Virginia teacher strike, one of the most important social movements of this year, maybe the most important, provided an alternative definition to all these other definitions of Appalachia. Do you think that the strike reawakened Americans more generally to the region's ongoing historical reality of intense class conflict, if maybe a bit romantically? Um, And also, do you think it has reawakened Appalachians to their own history as well? Meaning, has the experience of the strike remade people's political subjectivities as political action often can do? You know, to the first question, um, has this helped Americans understand the nuances of Appalachia better? I don't actually think so. Um, I think what I think is true is that the coverage of the teacher's strike in many respects was was phenomenal and, and you know, nuanced in a way that election coverage was not um, I don't think that that was because Americans had learned any any lessons or the media had learned any lessons. I think that there was just a, you know, there were better reporters and writers covering the strike. So you had um, people like Sarah Jones um, and Sarah Chaffee, for example, who knew their way around the labor movement, writing about the strike, and that yielded better quality of coverage. Um, Friends of the podcast. Yeah, <laughs> excellent. Yeah, yeah, but but you know. It, it made a difference having people who understood um, the issues at work, you know, flipped. It was it was night and day. Um, you had articles that said, "Hey, now wait a minute. Um, maybe the Democrats aren't the good guys." You know, you know. So things that would have been quite helpful um, angles uh, during the 2016 election, you know, before and in, in the aftermath as well. That leads into the second the second part of that question, which is, has this reawakened um, West Virginia in some way? You know, it's, it's difficult to answer because the range of political choices for people in West Virginia is very narrow, and it would it's going to take longer than six to eight months for those for the, for that window to open. Um, you're not going to you might see differences in this you know this election, um, but you you might not. It might take it might take a little while longer to be able to see what many Americans um, would regard as um, success. So, but it was important to teachers. It was important for people in these communities to, I think, be in communion with their history a little bit more. Um, West Virginians are incredibly historically literate. Um, some of the most historically literate people that that I've ever met, especially Southern West Virginia. And so to be able to have some kind of tangible link um, to experience between their, their, their family who participated in the 1990 teacher strike, for example, but also uh, grandparents and great grandparents that, you know, participated in, in, you know, collective action against uh, coal operators. Um, I think that was profound. That was powerful. And that did that did the world good. One specific political candidacy right now that I think is an interesting window into what extent the complicated direction that West Virginia politics seem to be heading is that of Democrat Richard Ojeda, who <laughs> is running a 
a, a fierce campaign that he very well could win in a U.S. House seat in a very, very Republican-leading district. I think tr- it's uh, rated like R plus 20-something mm-hmm. by Cook Political Report. He is, for a East Coast leftist like myself, a and maybe for an Appalachian leftist like you as well, a complicated mm. figure. He was a vociferous supporter of the teacher strike. Mm-hmm. I think the most high-profile person in West Virginia state government in terms of backing the teachers, and says things like, quote, We have created more billionaires and millionaires. We have made this nation wealthy, while our people have remained dirt poor without any opportunities. That's great. But he also is a big supporter of coal. Mm -hmm. In at least two photos that I think were taken on on different days of his campaign that I've seen in the news, he he likes to wear a shirt criticizing, at least implicitly criticizing, NFL players for kneeling on the grounds of supporting the troops. So what should one make of Ojeda? You know, full disclosure, the, the, the people that I know in West Virginia who are teachers absolutely love him. Like I am, um, I hope like he's none a celebrity. Of, yeah, like I hope, <laughs> I hope none of them listen to this podcast because I'm going to say like some quite negative things about him and, um, <laughs> you know, friendships might suffer. But Richard Ojeda first came on my radar for two distinct things. Um, and that was um, successfully backing a push for legalization of medical cannabis in West Virginia, which was fantastic, but also going up to bat as a prominent Democrat to explain why Democrats should vote for Donald Trump. So this is my introduction to Richard Ojeda. Is, um, so as I read the book, I'm reading all these pieces about Trump country, this and that, and Richard Ojeda is in a lot of them, you know, kind of telling, telling um the i guess you know the audience why why it's good why west virginia democrats and all west virginians but but democrats especially that's his lane should vote for donald trump and that is wild to me it is wild to me and of course he's like flipped his script now he's you know i was wrong but um he you know, not on he coal a, he says trump yeah, has brought yeah. back coal um and so he is a person i think that um maybe progressives outside the region want to exist and, and want to believe exist in large numbers. This kind of, um, you know, Democrat who lost his way from the party and was hoodwinked by Donald Trump, but um, has since come back like better than ever uh, ready to fight. And um, I think, you know, it's just grift. I think Richard Ojeda is is a grifter. He might be the grifter that West Virginia needs, um, but he's a grifter. Uh, <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Um like I, I, think, I imagine you hope that he beats the, his Republican competitor, yeah. but just that it doesn't mean what people might hope it means. Well, I think that people look at characters like Richard Ojeda and and possibly even you know like Joe Manchin and and even Jim Justice, these kind of like quirky um, political figures who um, you know are successful. And they say, well, this is what, you know, this is the best you can do for West Virginia. Come on now. And I don't think that that is true. I think West Virginia can do better than Richard Ojeda. I hope Richard Ojeda wins. But I think West Virginia and the left in general in places like West Virginia deserves better than than Richard Ojeda, um, someone who's, who is pro-military, uh, pro-coal, for example. But his candidacy does seem to perhaps be, you know, all of your 
critique seems accurate, but at the same time, the contradictory set of issues that his candidacy converges around does seem to reflect some center of gravity politically in mm-hmm. Pennsylvania, in uh, West Virginia. Does that seem fair? Yeah, I think that, you know, so he is, he, Richard Ojeda, and this is not, certainly not unique to Richard Ojeda, but it is um, a rarity among politicians, has found a way to dignify coal miners without falling into the complete war on coal narrative. And so I think that he has found a way, and and successful West Virginia politicians also find this way, to be pro-worker without being completely pro-business. And it's a tightrope walk. It, 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 you know, it totally is, and it's 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 complicated. Um, but that seems to be, as you say, a big center of gravity for people that want to have a political future in West Virginia. Expanding on on that, you you rightfully critique the the use of West Virginia and the region more broadly as shorthand for the entirety of Trump's national base. Uh, you know, Trump did very well on on Staten Island. Uh, he did very well in all kinds of places, not very far from municipalities that consider themselves the, you know, epicenters of the the resistance. But it is still true that Trump is rather popular mm-hmm. in Appalachia. So I want to know what you what you make of that. Is this just like what's particular to the region, and what is more better understood as part of a more general national phenomenon? Like, is it just? the same realignment that hit the South and also other white working class segments of the New Deal coalition elsewhere, belatedly arriving to Appalachia, which was stayed stronger and more monolithically democratic for longer. And so it's it's sudden flip to the right gets our attention, but it's just the same, like a, a similar process that's already taken place elsewhere. It is completely understandable that when um, Donald Trump came out and you know started this rhetoric about um, the coal industry and big beautiful coal and all this BS, um, <laughs> that a lot of eyes were going to be on Appalachia, and that it is completely understandable to send reporters um, and kind of and pundits and politicos to West Virginia to ask people who actually work in you know coal mining and coal impacted regions what they thought about this um i don't so and and i think that is you know legitimately one of the unique aspects of um this political moment this kind this kind of like weird um weirdly stubborn you know um belief in the comeback of coal that is you know that's a real thing um and that's worth interrogating and interrogating, you know, up top and then interrogating from below um, in the sense that, you know, there, there are people who still work in these industries that um, are an important part of the conversation. But other than that, you know, it's it's hard to see that there, that there is anything specific to Appalachia or West Virginia that, that can't be um, folded into the national story about the popularity of Donald Trump. I think that... If anything, white West Virginians and Appalachians are are the latecomers to this realignment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and, and, I mean, in terms of, of the electorate, um, West Virginia was one of, you know, the last kind of areas uh, in, in the region to kind of fall 
you know, to go red. Um, but I think, you know, when the, when the, um, the political narrative formed, um, when he became a viable candidate that, you know, people were saying like, well, this is, you know, economic anxiety. So there's economic anxiety, the narrative, which, um, kind of positions a, I think, fictitious, you know, good natured, wholehearted person who is just kind of like hoodwinked and by this, you know, snake oil salesman who, um, held their nose and pulled a lever because everyone else had abandoned them, you know, versus, versus, you know, economic anxiety, the reality, which is a lot of people who, um, have the luxury of racial animus also are quite, uh, you know, experiencing a lot of economic precarity as well. And so I think that's the, the national, the national story. Um, and I haven't seen too, too much to convince me that there's, I don't know that there's a, a secret, for example, <laughs> to what's going on that needs to be uh, unlocked any further than that. I want to talk about Cole more. It's this, this icon of bygone prosperity, not only within the region, but really, I think, across the U.S. In, in Appalachia, it seems that for some, this this deep history of resistance to the coal industry's brutality and exploitation and destruction that for some workers and residents that has been transfigured into an identification with the coal industry itself against outside threats from out of touch environmentalists and their allies in Washington. Um, But then it's not just within Appalachia. Trump's message about coal seems to have been aimed very much to his base everywhere and that it it seems to have resonated elsewhere as well. He talks about bringing coal back, not just when he's campaigning or giving speeches within the region, but across the country. What do you make of the powerful political resonance of coal inside the region and, and without? I think that um, Donald Trump has learned some serious lessons from the coal industry about messaging, not just about coal itself, but about how to talk about workers, for example. Um, You know, the narrative about the war on coal is one of the most, I don't know, insidious that I have ever encountered. And it's really difficult, I think, for people outside the region to understand um, just how structural that is. For example, um, grade school children, you know, get taken on field trips to mining sites and they let them play with like cool heavy equipment and they give them you know cupcakes with like chocolate filling in them to represent the coal and just there's just like this process of indoctrination that takes place um within Appalachia that tells you that you know coal you know coal is almost like uh, a religion to to some people who live here and it's very hard um if you've not grown up in in kind of that these circumstances to understand coal miners take on um, sort of like they're placed on a pedestal up there with uh, first responders and police officers and soldiers, people who sacrifice, have heroic sacrifices um, for their communities. And (laughs) I think that that is just, you know, really, I guess, really, really powerful, really powerful messaging in general, when you're talking about people who are disadvantaged to kind of put them up on a, on this pedestal, even though that, that their position is um, the relationship is still quite um, abuse. It's very abusive. Um, 
they've completely tried to transform the history of the region. So, you know, you encounter people who think that coal miners in the past went on strike for the right to mine coal and just like, <laughs> like crazy, you know, just like, in, you know, wild Against bullshit. like er- early 20th century yeah. environmentalists. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, tree huggers. Um, and it's just, I mean, it's just wild. It's wild. Um, and what this messaging tells you is that you are not a worker. You are part of a family. You know, the coal company is your family, and everybody else is is a, a you know a potential hostile to you. Um, and it's very I don't know I don't really have the language to speak about it because I'm not a psychologist, and I think that's you know the missing a missing layer to kind of these conversations is to um, bring in some bring somebody with psychological expertise to explain like programming and deprogramming because I think that's what it will take to kind of to open eyes to what the reality is here. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at Patreon and by University of California Press, which has loads of great titles perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Making All Black Lives Matter, Reimagining Freedom in the 21st Century by Barbara Ransby. The breadth and impact of Black Lives Matter in the United States has been extraordinary. Between 2012 and 2016, thousands of people marched, rallied, held vigils, and engaged in direct actions to protest and draw attention to state and vigilante violence against Black people. What began as outrage over the 2012 murder of Trayvon Martin and the exoneration of his killer, and accelerated during the Ferguson Uprising of 2014, has evolved into a resurgent black freedom movement, which includes a network of more than 50 organizations working together under the rubric of the Movement for Black Lives Coalition. Employing a range of creative tactics and embracing group-centered leadership models, these visionary young organizers, many of them women and many of them queer, are not only calling for an end to police violence, but demanding racial justice, gender justice, and systemic change. In Making All Black Lives Matter, award-winning historian and longtime activist Barbara Ransby outlines the scope and genealogy of this movement, documenting its roots in black feminist politics and situating it squarely in a black radical tradition, one that is anti-capitalist, internationalist, and focused on some of the most marginalized members of the black community. Making All Black Lives Matter, Reimagining Freedom in the 21st Century, by Barbara Ransby out now from University of California Press. You note that there is a, a tendency within Appalachia to pin problems on on outsiders. Sometimes, historically, mm-hmm. I'm sure that's completely reasonable given the amount of extensive damage that major East Coast capitalists have done to the, the people and the land in the region. But that seems to have definitely helped facilitate the the industry's war on coal narrative. I forget when this was, but I was driving through Western Pennsylvania a while back, and I I encountered this um this billboard series, BigGreenRadicals.com. I don't know if that's down in your neck of the woods. No, too. I don't think so. It has stuff like a photo of uh of Yoko Ono that says, "Would you take energy advice from the woman who broke up the Beatles?" <laughs> um, oh Lady Gaga, would you take energy advice from a woman wearing a meat dress? This is another thing that's not particular to Appalachia, but I'm wondering how you see the 
effective relocation of anti-elite sentiment from an economic context of people being pissed at rich people and their bosses to one around like cultural elites. In the 1960s, in in particular, when you had a lot of um, young people who weren't from Appalachia coming to the region to be, for example, like Vista AmeriCorps workers, people that we would call poverty warriors, um, volunteers to do things like build schools and repair roads for the poor people, poor mountain people. As part um, of the we, war on poverty, yeah, part and of the war on society. poverty. And when they um, started to organize with maybe older mountain people in the region, there was local communities that you know tried very hard to kick out the younger elements, to put them on trial. There were sedition trials um, in Appalachia. They were brought by local governments. So there is a lot of resistance throughout the region and, and throughout the history of um, elites. Local mayor, for example, pointing to like a young radical who might be living in the region and saying, like, you're, you're a bad element. You're bringing all these problems here. When in reality, it's, you know, people in the mountains who are um, – the driving force for a lot of things, and this is a you know a problem. One of the reasons, one of the problems that I have with, um, for example, the the colony model of Appalachia, because it doesn't really um, adequately explain the role of compliant local elites. Are there are um, tons of extremely rich people yes, in the region, it, I mean, um, surrounded by far more poor people. Yes. Yes, there, there's always been a role for compliant local elites within kind of the the extractive uh, the system of extractive capitalism we hear we have here. Whether that is law enforcement officers that took bribes from coal companies to kind of menace um, poor people that served as the workforce to kind of people like Jim Justice who are just incredibly wealthy business owners that don't pay their taxes um, and communities suffer because of that. So there's a long history, a long history of, of that and political corruption, for example, facilitating a lot of destructive practices um, in the region. I think I think I don't know if you've heard heard this story, but Jim Justice owes like two point six million dollars in taxes <laughs> to to a, to a couple of counties in eastern Kentucky. And they're carrying that abatement on their school system. So, so the school, like the roofs are falling into schools and things like that, simply because the governor of West Virginia um, is too, you know, too important to pay his taxes uh, for his out-of-state business. And so there's, you know, there's lots of situations like that um, within Appalachia. There's communities that um, could take on substantial revitalization, revitalization projects, for example, but there's stubborn-ass landlords that. Um, our, our locals that refuse to to sell the land or transfer the land, even when offered, um, you know, fair or over market value for it, just because they want to retain that power within their communities. One of the most instructive ways, I think, to think about those tensions are when local media cover our white nationalist problems um, in Appalachia. They really want it to be so badly, like these bad guys from outside the region that are coming in and messing things up. But it's not. It's homegrown. So, yeah, there's definitely a lot of reflective practice and organizing in Appalachia that it needs to be directed at at our own people. Trump says things like, the coal people like me, and I like them, the miners. He has lauded, quote, big, strong coal miners. I love your grit, your spirit, and I love our coal miners, and they're coming back strong. He said, we have farmers, coal miners, 
And by the way, those coal miners are happy coal miners. They like Trump. They like Trump. This seems to me, weirdly enough, to reflect a certain politics of of recognition in this moment of neoliberal identity politics, a sort of reactionary identity politics whereby by miners, according to Trump's formulation, and maybe very well for for some miners too, really want a thank you, really want appreciation, visibilization, recognition. And that has perhaps displaced some of the political economic context that is the reality of present-day Appalachia. What, what, what do you make of this Trump thanking minors, putting them at center stage, the politics of that? Right. So I think, you know, when we were talking about the war on coal, um, one of its tactics is to kind of put coal miners on a pedestal up there with um, sort of law enforcement people and, and soldiers. And so there's this kind of cultural of, of, of supplication that comes along with that. I don't really know how many coal miners buy, buy into that, but, but, but for sure, um, recognition and supplication, being honored for sacrifice is a big, big part of that for those that do sort of have that mentality. But um, Van Jones at CNN kind of did this interesting thing that kind of flew under the the, ra- the radar and the the trauma of the first kind of weeks of the, of the Trump administration. He went to West Virginia and he re-interviewed a lot of people like the micro celebrities of the Trump country genre, I suppose, <laughs> like that coal miner that really stuck it to Hillary Clinton. Um, and they were like, so what do you think? So So they were obviously all happy that Trump had won. But when he started to ask them um, questions about their hopes for the administration and if they believed him and, and this, that, and the other, you know, they were, there were much more, um, I, I suppose, um, reflective about that. They would say things like, well, you know, I don't really like Trump, but um, my religious beliefs meant that I couldn't vote for Clinton because she um, supports abortion. Um, she wants abortion. She, you know, wants abortion to be legal and safe. Um, so, so there are, there are a lot more um, answers like that that were proliferating within coal country, the kind of answers that I think, you know, you would see nationwide as well. Um, then there were like, yeah, we're going to, you know, bring back coal all the way 100%. Let's do it. Um, so, you know, I think that talking about coal is definitely, um, it, it's almost like a secret language in some respects. Um, you have to do it just right and prove that you um, can do it just right to have, um, you know, credibility within coal country. Or you can be like Trump and just sort of like um, scream loudly and say nonsense and gibberish, but, you know, put your thumbs up every time somebody says coal. But also, you know, it's important to keep in mind, I suppose for me, it's important for me to keep in mind as someone who does political organizing in the region that the the population share of, of people who have these could could potentially have these beliefs is so, so small um, that it's really not um, going to it's not really as a significant segment of the electorate for people, I think, who want to do um, organizing going forward. Well, in some ways, it seems like a a culture war issue posing as an economic one. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, And, you know, will be even more so by the time um, the next election happens. Another aspect of this coal as an icon 
it seems to me, is that it's not just a symbol of a bygone economic era, but also of a certain type of muscular masculinity that is seen, again, not just within Appalachia, but everywhere, as having been the backbone of the prosperity of that era. And I wonder if in Trump's vision and those of many of his supporters, and maybe not Maybe this isn't happening at a conscious level, but I wonder if it's not just environmentalism and globalism that have deindustrialized the United States, but in some ways, feminism and the gay rights movement as well. I mean, I definitely don't disagree that um, the projection of coal mining is the most masculine thing that um, someone can do within you know industries of a certain type certainly prevails. But what I also think about is if you go and you talk to to coal miners. Um, Talk to coal miners that have children who are, you know, have have met um, have sons, and you say, "Would you want your son to be a coal miner?" <laughs> like most of them will say, "No, absolutely, absolutely not." So, so fatherhood, which is like the most, um, could be seen as the most masculine thing that um, a man can do, you know, is is like the the area that. Um, Miners get most protective about and, and most reflective and most real about the you know the wages of the coal industry and what the and the harm that the coal industry poses. So it's really 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 complicated. I think mostly um, to people like Donald Trump, this you know an affluent, out of touch, um, you know kind of person who doesn't really care about workers and it's all bravado. Um, it's going off, you know, going a long way with individuals of that type. And not to get into like Trump body shaming, but it is there's something telling about the guy who's not exactly like a an Adonis really idealizing and who doesn't seem to do much with his body physically exercise speaking. He seems to have this theory that that exercising would deplete his vital energy reserves. He said something to that effect that he projects this form of masculinity of like the muscle, the muscle man working underground. It's just. Yeah. Well, it has such a a short (laughs) shelf life, too, because, you know, black lung is making a comeback. And so when when Trump like had to populate some of his early press conferences, like to repeal the Stream Protection Act, and he got miners, tried to get miners behind him to pose. Um, some of them were on, you know, oxygen and things like that. Like he really needed Bob Murray, who's a big energy company boss, in his photo op, and he dressed him up like a miner, even though he's a, you know, a billion dollar executive. But he has, you know, a breathing apparatus and things like that because coal mining is is such a, a such a dangerous vocation and has such physical consequences to it too. So it's just, I mean, the, the sort of like physicality of coal mining and what it means in these conversations is wild. Yeah, that is totally wild because you have these people, the, the, these, the, these men idealized in their prime as the epitome of, of, of masculine, strong, masculine, blue collar labor, but the very policies that Trump is, is pursuing are accelerating the destruction of of those bodies, his I forget precisely what, but it, it, deregulatory actions his administration sure. has yeah, taken exactly. are, are connected to the rise in black lung recently. It's an Obama, it could, an Obama thing too. Ah. Um, but basically, the, the the comeback of the black lung is that um, there are safety measures put in place that weren't actually working when people thought that they were working, um, and so a lot more people had been put at risk than we ever assumed could be possible. And so that's, you know, kind of the cornerstone of the new academic. But everything that Trump wants to do is going to make it so much worse. Unfortunately, I want to talk about J.D. Vance more. Um, (laughs) 
His book, Hillbillyology, is sadly enough currently being made into a movie, I believe. Yeah, it's like the ultimate betrayal because uh, Opie's making it. You write, quote, For many conservatives, the beauty of Elegy was not just what it said about the lot of poor white Americans, what it implied about black Americans as well. I found that really striking how how Vance simultaneously racialized poor white pe- poor white Appalachians as not good enough almost to be actually white while also offering conservatives cover for their constant denigration of poor black people because for conservatives demeaning poor white people serves as proof that they aren't racists exactly this is like the charles murray uh career reinvention strategy yeah, like expl- you you compare Elegy to noted scientific racist Charles Murray's book Pathologizing Poor White People, which I took note of at the time because it was about a neighborhood in Philly and I was a reporter at the Philadelphia City Paper. Yeah. Then um called Coming Apart: The State of White America, <laughs> yeah. 1960-2010. And you note that that Coming Apart and Elegy were both way less controversial than the bell curve which is which has a lot of fucked up shit in it but it's mostly infamous for its biologically racist account of black people's conditions why do you think that is that that the bell curve is still this this icon of scientific racism while elegy and coming apart have I mean, they've been criticized plenty, but have, by comparison, flown under the radar. You know, Charles Murray flipping his script from the bell curve to coming apart to talk about um, poor white people as opposed to poor poor black people is essentially the flipping of the script from talking about genetics to talking about culture, which culture is the softer thing. Um, it's, you know, it's going to be less controversial, even though it travels um, – much further behind it doesn't travel much further behind discussions of genetics i think but again um it's it comes across also as an in-group critique so charles murray raises asshole that he is um is like yeah i you know i'm a poor scotch irish person or i you know those are the kind of people i'm descended from so i'm talking about myself here and jd yeah, vance and my people we like yeah, to fight yeah. we like to fight we're very obsessed with honor and Whatnot. Yeah, all this kind of like crazy stuff, which is genetics just packaged um, in you know a kinder, gentler way, they presume. Um, and so, it, yeah, it comes across as an in-group critique rather than um, this cold uh, pseudoscientific study of um, a minority group. So I think that's, you know, that's kind of the magic that J.D. Vance and Charles Murray are working. But um, <laughs> you can quite easily see that... Um, these books, which are about poor white people, are clearly giving conservatives exactly what they want. Um, for example, if you re- read the, Amer- uh, the National Reviews, like first reviews of Hillbilly Elegy, they're like, yeah, this book is great. Um, it proves that poor white people have followed Native Americans and the black underclass into crippling self-delusion. Uh, <laughs> and you're like, subtle. yeah, no, it's, yeah, it's, it's not subtle at all. And like the, the wild thing is if you go to like a uh, JD Vance's little website for his nonprofit, which is going to be totally turned into um, a political campaign site 
like at any given moment, that that review is like mentioned in the first uh, line of text. It's like this is a book that that you know like like wow 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 this is not even subtle. So what's his political uh, campaign message going to be? Vote for me if you don't want to end up like the black people, which is the direction that you pour pieces of shit are heading. Like yeah, <laughs> I think so. I, I mean I think so. Um, it's you know a vote for it's just a vote for bootstraps. Um, and I think that you know what is so profound about this book is how how deeply it is revealed that. Um, progressives and and liberals particularly how politically illiterate um you know large swathes of america are because they received this book is is politically neutral um when it's very clearly not and they want you know this fantasy that it was politically neutral too um is just kind of fascinating to me i want to talk about some a really interesting piece of the history that you write about mm-hmm. because none of what we've been discussing is remotely new you tell this deeply disturbing story about the Appalachian people of Virginia's Shenandoah Valley. I think it was in the 1920s? 1930s. 1930s? Mm-hmm. Who, who are who are pseudoscientifically identified as inferior human stock by the state, but in some cases relocated to a eugenic sterilization camp. Mm-hmm all to make room for a new national park, one that I hiked in as a teenager, um, to to affect what is basically this rural counterpart to the urban renewal that devastated so many black neighborhoods a few decades later. And some of the unwanted residents were in fact sent to the very Virginia state colony for epileptics and feeble-minded that was at the center of the Supreme Court's infamous 1927 Buck v. Bell decision, Mm -hmm. which, of course, ruled in favor of coerced sterilization because, quote, three generations of imbeciles are enough. Mm -hmm. Explain a little about kind of the the early history of of white mountain people being identified as a a distinct and degenerate variant of, of whites. This is happening at the same time that eugenically minded people are turning their attention to Ellis Island and towards uh, Mm -hmm. immigration from Europe and deciding that a lot of this immigration that's Jewish from Southern Europe, from Eastern Europe is, is, is not immigration that we want and shutting that down. And so, and just a few years later, they're turning, it seems to the interior and finding an internal threat to, to white purity. Yeah, so just I'll keep using that same example. Um, in 1933, the federal government decided to kind of kickstart the development of what would become the Shenandoah Valley National Forest National Park um, and um, the Blue Ridge Parkway um, because of the manpower that, for example, the Civilian Conservation Corps and other New Deal programs could provide. And to do that, they had to um, get rid of about 500 people that were living on on the land in the Shenandoah Valley. And um, the tactic and strategy that that the government and private developers um, who lived in the area, who were going to be like the liaison between um, people on the ground and the federal government, um, hired this new class, hired people who were part of this new class of, of sociologists um, to come in and write 
really flawed studies of people who were, you know, to be evicted. And they would say, you know, these people are degenerate, they're inbred. Um, they're part of this really, you know, you know, decrepit kind of bloodline, Anglo-Saxon, or which later became Scotch-Irish, Anglo-Saxon pioneer stock. Um, they need, you know, to be relocated for the betterment of society. They're just going to overbreed if we leave them in the Shenandoah Valley. If we move them somewhere else, um, it will modernize them. And so <laughs> once, you know, and so um, the government, I mean, this kind of like spiraled because once the once people who were in Virginia social services, you know, came came into reports like this, they're like, well, we have to, you know, we can't just move them. We have to like put them in an institution, sterilize them, prevent them from breeding, because Virginia at the time was one of the epicenters of the American eugenics movement. Um, there was an organization called, called the Eugenics Record Office, helpfully, that was located in New York that was doing, you know, all the things with Ellis Island that you just mentioned. But what they were doing was looking um, at states and trying to create models of racial integrity laws. And so Virginia was um, just just like, you know, the Koch brothers um, tried to kind of test out, um, you know, plans to kind of create dominion over individual states. The eugenics record office was like, you know, we're going to create like little laboratories in different states to see what we can get away with. And Virginia was a very important one. And um, the, the Mountaineers, some of them were evicted, some of them, you know, were relocated, no issue. And, and some of them were institutionalized and sterilized. Um, the state of Virginia, I think it was almost 8,000 people um, were eugenically sterilized in Virginia from 1924 until I think 1978. Um, I live, yeah, I live down the road, um, just like half a mile away from one of the centers. And, um, and, you know, in, I think three decades, there were 1,205 people, um, sterilized in, in just that, um, institution alone. It's a wild, it's such a wild story. Um, it's part and parcel of, in, you know, this, quest to racialize what some people were calling the mountain white by that point to justify um, land grabs for lack of a, you know, lack of a going into a longer explanation. But um, because as we mentioned earlier, it was the, these sorts of representations of Appalachia as this, you know, incredibly backward place mm -hmm. that they're used by the coal industry to represent itself as a on a civilizing mission in the region. Yeah. And those representations later get caught up in the history of the eugenics movement um, to devastating consequences. And they kind of resurrect um, in the 1960s too. Um, you know, the, the American eugenics movement has sort of a, a gasp um, of reinforcement in the 1960s um, where you have like things like um, the mankind quarterly. So, so the people that would later, um, train people like Charles Murray, for example, um, kind of make a last attempt to to legitimize eugenics in the in the 1960s and 1970s. And and again, um, they they target Appal you know they try to target um, Appalachia because of this belief that there is a homogenous, defective uh, bloodline in the region. A lot of your book is about the the failure or like the inability for people to see heterogeneity and diversity in the region. 
whether that has to do with race and ethnicity. There are plenty of Latinos, plenty of black people. Historically, huge numbers of the strikers involved in the battle for Blair Mountain, Mm -hmm. I believe, were black. The early mining, years of mining, union mining organizing were extraordinarily interracial is my understanding. You point to some of the kind of statistical sleights of hands that that allow for this to happen. And you look at McDowell County, West Virginia, which really was represented as an epicenter of, of Trump country. And you note that according to official numbers, far more people didn't vote at all than voted for either Trump or Clinton. And so only 27 percent of registered voters, and that's amongst registered voters, who knows how many aren't registered, um, actually cast a ballot for Trump. And yet you write that there's no corresponding effort to interpret Bernie Sanders' enormous success in the Democratic primary as somehow key to understanding the, the, the true political underlying political truth of the state. Why is that? And and what does it reveal? I mean, I would like to know, too. <laughs> um, I, you know, um, I think that what happened with Appalachia is um, when, when Sanders ceased to be a viable political candidate, that the other narrative just, just spiraled. And for lack of interest um, amongst mainstream media, that, that didn't become a, a thread of discussion. But even I think when he was um, before, before the, you know, the primary concluded, there is efforts to say, for example, that um, Sanders' success in, in places like West Virginia was really just, um, you know, malicious uh, Clinton voters, you know, trying to like, I don't know, rig the election somehow um, that people were just, I guess, making joke votes. Malicious Trump voters. You mean. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Excuse me. Yes, of course. Um, and so the, those. I, those I, ex- I even heard that the theory, at least once, that it was sort of a kind of, I think, like a racist anti-Obama vote right. by proxy because Clinton was in the Obama administration, which seems like quite a lot of 12 dimensional chest for your average voter to engage in in the primary. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Clinton actually um, won, you know, was quite popular, more popular than Obama um, in West Virginia before, you know, the last <laughs> the last election. I honestly, I mean, I have suspicions that it has to do with, you know, wanting to use Appalachia as sort of a, a Rosetta Stone to explain Trump. And if you um, throw Bernie Sanders popularity in there, then, then, then the, um, you know, the narrative gets complicated. There, yeah, there's and there's like a resistance to reading Bernie's success as what it just uh, at face value yeah. would appear to indicate. And and I think also what Ojeda and Connor Lamb's victory in a heavily pro-Trump district in, in Pennsylvania, what they seem to, to indicate for all of their problems is that there is an appetite for economic populism mm-hmm. in the region. And that's was the centerpiece of Bernie's campaign. Mm-hmm. In retrospect, it doesn't seem shocking that he was popular in West Virginia. Well, I mean, it's a big it's a big deal if you, um, you know, or somebody from from Appalachia and you see uh, Bernie Sanders winning all West Virginia counties in, in, in the primary, um, especially if you compare the um, 
the plan for coal countries and, and sort of the conversation that the candidates had about coal countries uh, during the election. And you had, um, you know, Clinton's public-private partnership kind of um, revitalization plan. And then you had um, Sanders' sort of like make work type of revitalization plan. Those are big deals. Those are big deals. Um, and so I think we were, you know, d deprived a little bit of a conversation that we could have had um, about why those differences were, were significant. Um, and now, you know, and now we're, we're, we're kind of moved ahead and talking about, you know, like, oh, I, there's Richard Ojeda, isn't he JFK with tattoos um, kind of, <laughs> kind of thing. So, so yeah, um, it isn't, you know, it was, it was incredibly important to me as someone on the left to see, I have, I've never been so thrilled um, to see Sanders sweep West Virginia and in, in the way that he did. I can, you know, I, I don't have any way to like prove it to you, but there's, you know, no joke votes, no malicious votes, no tricksters. Um, it was just a, a desire for, for economic realism. And if you talk to people who um, work in, in sort of areas that are really like, have been economically devastated, like Eastern Kentucky or Southern West Virginia, um, nailing the balance between false hope and clear-eyed realism is in, is incredibly important. Um, people, you know, don't respond well to this. Like, you know, you're a valuable, you know, you're you're kind of like uh, you were once a great person. We're going to, you know, <laughs> we're going to make a, sure, we're going to give you a gonna, national round of applause. Yeah, we're not going to make sure you're not left behind anymore. Um, versus um, the sort of like, hey, this really sucks that it happened to you. It's not your fault. Um, we can, you know, we can do better. When there's all this national discussion over why Appalachians vote against their own interests, at least in the case of West Virginia, one thing that a lot of people, one thing that's rarely mentioned is the role that West Virginia Democratic politicians played in helping their ostensible Republican opponents in in pushing this notion that there is a war on coal and thus laying the groundwork for their own political demise, ultimately. Can you say a little bit about the role that the Democratic Party, both in West Virginia and to the extent that you can speak to it throughout mm -hmm. the region, has played in the shift to the right? I, I really hate the phrase... Um or the idea that the Appalachians vote against their own interests. So I'm, you know, in my, in my thirties and I have never voted for a can. I've never voted in my own interest and I vote in almost every election. Um, the last, the gubernatorial election in Virginia, where I live now was the first time as a voter, I have ever voted for a candidate that has won. And it, you know, I hate Ralph Northam's ass, but it was the first time that somebody, uh, I checked a ballot and my candidate won. It was, you know, it, incredible for as much as I am, um, I think, you know, have um, a good track record doing political organization and have politically sophisticated thoughts. That experience of knowing that you're going to go to the polls and lose is is just, in, you know, incredibly demoralizing. And to be on the other side of that was really, really profound. Um, and West Virginia, West Virginia Democrats are the worst. Um, so the idea that, you know, some like the the conventional wisdom that you just need to suck it up and vote Democrat. I don't even know if that could 
could be could be accurate in, in West Virginia. I mean, take Jim Justice, who won um, the governor's the governor's seat as a Democrat, and then a year later um, flipped to Republican. You know, what are you what are you supposed to do when when those are your politics? You used to tell the story that I didn't know about that. Charlotte Pritt. Jo- Joe Manchin, uh, who's currently a rather endangered West Virginia Democratic U.S. senator, um, that he lost. Yeah, he lost the, the Democratic primary in 1996 for governor to this woman, Charlotte Pritt. And he campaigned along with other Democrats for her Republican opponent who won. Yeah. And she lost the election. She was um, sort of, you know, um, a great white hope in West Virginia, a rising star of the Democratic Party and somebody who represented again, like successfully, I think, walked this tightrope between being, you know, um, anti-corporate interests, but also pro-worker and pro-environment. And she did it well. And in response to that, she won the party's primary and Joe Manchin sabotaged her. Um, and of course, he he's now, you know, <laughs> you know, one of the worst, uh, the worst state senators, you know, in the party. And so and so if we want to understand, like, why today or why in 2016, yeah. she's running on a third party mountain party, mountain party exactly. ticket and, and only getting six percent of the vote, like what happened over that decade, we have to look at people like Joe Manchin, Joe Manchin and um, his, you know, his opponent um, who, who lost the primary, Paula Jean Swearingen who is an, an absolute um, powerhouse who is known to many people for her environmental activism and anti-mountaintop removal activism, you know, was cut kind of from the same cloth as Charlotte Pritt. Um, and so even though she, she was not successful, um, I think it was good to see that kind of energy again out there. She did, you know, she did, she did well um, as well as you can for not being successful and, and seeing that, you know, in, in Charlotte Pritt's return as well. Um, great you know tremendous energy but west virginia politics are are sort of again it's a low-hanging fruit for somebody to be to be able to understand how there's you know sometimes there's just no such thing as voting in your own interest my last question is you tell in your book the stories of people of appalachian people who are not often the center of national media stories about Appalachia, at least until the teachers strike, mm-hmm. labor agitators, community leaders who stood up against big coal, people today struggling against the region's prison boom. Mm-hmm. You note that this history also doesn't exclusively define the region. It's not like it's just this region of of heroic left wing resistors by no means. But you write, but. If you're invested in arguing that Appalachians are trapped in the past, and especially if you make a name or living from it, it seems disingenuous to not find out what people in the past actually did to address poverty and inequality. I think that's a really powerful point. And my final question is, where do you see these struggles going from here? One of the things that needs to happen in Appalachia is land reform. Um, that taps into all kinds of organizing that's taking place in Appalachia, past and present. Um, anti-capitalist organizing, um, labor organizing, the idea that we have to get our most valuable resource. And our, the most valuable resource in your community might not be the same in my community, but in Appalachia, it's, it's land because of what is contained under the land. Um, and so to get that back from 
obstructive corporate interest, absentee landowners is going to be incredibly important because we can see um, when we do have such you know, large space of negative lands in Appalachia, it becomes prisons. And we become, you know, the center of, of America's rural prison boom. So for me, um, what I what I see is important is organizing in tandem with lots of groups for measurable um, outcomes, like changing laws to allow, for example, land banking. Um, what I think what the risk is, is we, we will, we are at the point where we will see the end of coal within my lifetime and the next 50 years, it is sure to happen no matter what any politician says. And so we don't want the, the Appalachia to become a playground or, or a laboratory for venture capitalists, you know, for neoliberal developers, because we've been that um, and it never works out. We need whatever comes is next for Appalachia, um, people who live in the region, who have political um, who have a political economy, a stake in the political economy of the region, need to be part of what happens next. No matter what, we have for too long served as sort of this, you know, playground for the ideas of of the powerful and wealthy, and um, no more. Have you considered tax breaks for cryptocurrency operators? <laughs> no, we haven't. We haven't <laughs> considered that. No. Um, well, Elizabeth Cat, thank you so very much. Oh, thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Elizabeth Cat is a writer and historian based in Staunton, Virginia, and the author of what You Are Getting Wrong About Appalachia, and an editor of the book, 55 Strong, Inside the West Virginia Teacher Strike. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after describing the long wedge of mountainous country driven into the heart of slavery, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, usually twice. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also does that is you telling your friends about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us on Patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing going. Even a few bucks is a big help. <laughs>